yeah, so Anna, it's super, super exciting to have you on the podcast. We've been trying to set this up uh, for a little while. And, um, you know, Anna has been a longtime friend of ours and has gone on to do some uh, really interesting things in the past few years since last time we all kind of uh, lived in the same place. So uh, would you want to just kind of introduce yourself and maybe say where you're at right now and what you're up to? Yeah, sure, Keegan. Thanks so much for having me on this podcast. And I'm so um, excited that you're still carrying forward the spirit of all of our discussions that happened back on Poplar Street when we were all living in Halifax. It's really wonderful and inspiring. Um, Since then, I took some time and worked fruit picking in the Okanagan, which was always kind of a dream of mine. Then I went to South America, had a little trip in the jungle in a couple ways and did some yoga and then after that I went and I just finished my master's degree in based out of the University of Alberta in Edmonton and it's a master's in biology specialization in ecology so that was with the Department of Biological Sciences from the university there and I was in uh, the tank lab of aquatic biogeochemistry. So my supervisor was Dr. Suzanne Tank. And I had the yeah, the, the honor and privilege to work with her. She's an amazing scholar, academic scientist, as well as a number of other really intelligent and wonderful people within the lab itself, other students. That's really cool. Um and do, yeah, and- do you want to share where you are right now too? Yeah, sure. And so, right. So I finished, I defended my thesis in January. And since then, I got a two month contract with the uh, federal government with the Northern Forestry Center, working in their tree ring lab. And so people who study tree rings, the the fancy word for that is dendrochronology. And so, yeah, it's a nice one. So you process uh, many samples of uh, tree cores and so that people can analyze them and tree rings are kind of a good quantitative measure of changes in moisture as well as temperature and the influence of fires and pests so I've just been counting like I've not been doing any like analysis or full research on that but I definitely uh, know how to use a belt sander now so that was a cool experience um, and so I've been continuing that and right now I am out at Sunrise Gardens which is an organic vegetable farm and I'm participating in the Young Agrarian Apprenticeship Program through the government the provincial government of Alberta um, so I've been paired with a mentor and um, my mentor is Dawn. She runs Sunrise Gardens. She's been running this farm here for the past 15 years on her like original family land. And they specialize in micro in microgreens and in off, off growing season production. So here in Edmonton, it's a really high northern latitude, and that means that the growing season is kind of like a sprint. There's like nine months of winter, essentially, and yeah. so they decided that their way to make farming more sustainable and kind of carve their niche out within the capitalist food production system was to focus on growing microgreens, so sunflower shoots, 
what else? Alfalfa sprouts, bean sprouts, arugula shoots, and all of that is just done inside. Yeah. And so they they do pretty well because they're able to offer nutrient packed greens in like February when totally. everything else is under six feet of snow. So so it's cool. And also Dawn took um Dawn is kind of like a master in composting. So she took a course by Dr. Elaine Ingham, who was an American soil ecologist, and she's kind of the founder of soil ecology and soil microbiology as a field and its applications to agriculture. So Dawn is really uh, experienced and skilled in making things like compost teas and making certain kinds of compost. And they have a couple microscopes here and she looks at um, her soil to see the ratio of fungi to bacteria and to know like what to add to it. So I'm excited to nerd out and um, apply like my science ecology knowledge more to farming because it's becoming increasingly important. Yeah, absolutely. It seems more and more relevant every day, especially as we see like in the media, the um, kind of failures of the food systems to respond to contemporary crises around COVID and everything, like all this food is going to waste. And also I got to say, like I, uh, the organization that I work for also has a, um, uh, a greenhouse where they grow microgreens during the winter. And so I yeah. was eating uh, microgreens this winter and it was really awesome. That's an awesome thing to yeah. have access to. So uh, that's, that's super exciting. <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. Yeah. It's just so beautiful when you bite into it and you're like, nothing can really replace that. Like it's not like yeah. I can eat a plastic dollar bill, right? <laughs> no doubt. <laughs> Um, I mean, you could try, but, uh, you know, you might get sick or <laughs> something. Yeah, a little indigestion. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so maybe we can just kind of charge right ahead here and um, jump into our interview questions and discussion. So you already kind of covered this uh, in terms of your field of, of, of research, but I'm just going to ask this first question anyway, and maybe you could like give us a bit more um, information and uh, kind of specifically make the connection for us between like the kind of work you were doing uh, in your master's degree and uh, how you see that as like a, a relevant measure of ecosystem uh, sustainability. And maybe even the if you if you want to uh, make some of the connections as to how people use dendrochronology, uh, which would be that tree ring stuff that you've been working on, like how that operates as a measure of of ecosystem health as well. Yeah, sure. So. I feel like my wheelhouse is a little bit more in what I did my master's work in because I did like a full like two year long research project and my understanding of dendrochronology is still, um, I would say like novice to intermediate. So um, I, I guess just like in reference to the field of research that I was working in in my master's degree, um, it was biogeochemistry. So it's a big handle, but it essentially means the focus on Earth's geochemistry, so geology and chemistry being mostly things to do with water because uh, water is the universal solvent. And when we think about uh, natural chemistry, it's mostly just happening in lakes and streams. 
Um, so geo being like solid matter, material, weathering, rocks, chemistry being the streams and waters and the interaction of that. And then bio is life. So that goes anywhere from, you know, living organisms, but especially in biogeochemistry, there's a cool focus on microbes because most of the um, kind of like unique uh, and rare metabolic pathways that allow certain biogeochemical cycles to, to function happen through little microbes. And it's, it's a neat area. So I guess um, how it relates to climate change is, well, the carbon cycle and principles of biogeochemistry is that we exist in a steady state system. Like there, there isn't really, aside from like a marginal amount of material coming in from like meteoroids or asteroids, we're generally steady state. The one exception being solar radiation is like the input energy for all life and everything else on Earth. Um, another principle is principle of thermodynamics. So energy in and energy out, like they follow that the law, right? Like you can't just have something from nothing. Um and so then aside from that, like if you wanted to kind of delve into biogeochem, you would look at the major um, elements that are required for living organisms on Earth. So carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, hydrogen, sulfur, um, phosphorus, those are the main ones. And um, yeah, so carbon's one of those. And it would just be studying like how those base elements travel throughout the world and all of the different kind of molecular compounds they form in different states. So for example, on the carbon cycle, um, what kind of like molecular form does carbon take in the soil? What kind of molecular form does it take in water? What kind of molecular form does it take in the atmosphere? And then how does it travel between all of those um, kind of storage areas and does it change as it travels uh, through those through those areas in the earth and um, that directly relates to climate change because uh, climate change is the a symptom of a gross imbalance of the global carbon cycle um, so you know all of our cycles are steady state and all of our cycles our chemical cycles especially the carbon cycle we're talking about now they just they've kind of evolved to be homeostatic over many billions of years. And when I say homeostatic, I mean self-regulating. And I think that's an important concept to think about when you think about sustainability, that um, the systems that are currently in place that are cycling matter and energy on the earth um, have evolved to a space of rel relative homeostasis. And when you think about climate change, there is that homeostatic balance that had been kind of, you know, relative fluctuation. And we, we can talk about that, too, later on. Um, yeah, it's been thrown out of whack in a very short amount of time. So, so yeah. Can, yeah. I, can I ask you uh, very directly, like in layman's terms, um, when you talk about uh, an imbalance in, in the carbon cycle, um, as, yeah. a, as opposed to like a natural homeostasis or a natural balance, right? So the, the first question yeah. that just comes uh, to mind is like, uh, where is that imbalance coming from? Um, how would you go about answering that question? 
Yeah, so if you look at, um, there's, there's, in, there's information about this. So um, the, the, most of our knowledge of like kind of previous, like the carbon, the way that the carbon cycle and levels of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere as like a measure of one part of the integrated carbon cycle of the earth, um, you know, a lot of our information around that comes from ice cores. So, you know, ice in Antarctica, you take out this core, and then all of the bubbles that are in the ice are actually bubbles of atmosphere from, you know, eight 800,000 years ago, some of them. So then you can reconstruct these kind of climate histories mm -hmm. based on carbon dioxide from the last hundreds of thousands of years. And if, if you do that, you, you do see that there are kind of um, cycles of carbon dioxide concentration that cycle from anywhere from like uh, around 200 parts per million up to 280 parts per million on kind of a, a scale of like 100,000 years over the past 800,000 years. So that's like a very long time frame. These, these fluctuations are happening on like, you know, hundreds of thousands of years time scale. And at the end of the last glacial period, so that was around 10,000 years ago, right, when the ice age ended, the Earth's atmosphere was relatively stable at 280 parts per million. But then humans, because we're very smart, we, entered, we, uh, we figured out how to use internal combustion and utilize the fossilized sunlight energy that is packaged so nicely in fossil fuels. We learned how to use that and access that as a source of energy so we can power our society, right? So what happens when you... Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it's very ingenious. Um, we're definitely a society that's learned how to harness the power of fire. Um, but basically, like, the way you can think about that is that as a species, we've taken all of these fossilized stores of carbon, we've taken them out from where they've just kind of been sitting, not reacting with anything underneath the Earth's crust, and we've taken them out of there, and we've essentially just pumped it, that carbon back into the atmosphere. Um, you know, like nature wouldn't have done that on its own. That carbon would still all be down there. And, and when you look at the, the timeline of carbon dioxide concentrations in the atmosphere, right around the Industrial Revolution, so 200 years ago, when human society started utilizing internal combustion and the, um, with fossil fuels on a grand scale, the carbon dioxide concentrations of the atmosphere start increasing beyond the maximum point of any of the fluctuations that had been happening in the past 800,000 years. So it's an interesting coincidence is what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to look at that and be like, okay, something is happening here. Like even just visually, yeah. you can yeah. look at the graph yeah. and think, okay, yeah. this isn't, this is a, this is a fluctuation that's happening. And then, then all of a sudden the, the concentration just starts to go off, off the chart or into new charted territory. Right. Right. So if you, if you care, let's say about the kind of um, modeling of climate that's done through these 
these uh, ice cores and so on and so forth, it kind of easily gives the lie to, let's say, the bad faith argument that we often hear, I think, in uh, the media and so on that, oh, you know, the earth has always gone through these periods of fluctuation. There have been ice ages. There have been overheating. Um, natural cycles, bro. Yeah, natural there are these cycles. natural cycles. Like, yeah. so... <laughs> So the skepticism around the sort of human agency involved in uh, this kind of global change in the climate. Yeah, I mean, I think it's just grasping at straws because people don't want to take responsibility for the way that we're affecting the earth. Um, you know, like, it, it's not like it's an either or. It's like, yes, the earth has natural cycles. And yes, humans yes. are, uh, <laughs> like... Yeah. impacting the climate in a extreme way that has not been really seen before in Earth's history. Just as a reference, so I said that the, the general maximum of concent carbon dioxide concentrations in the atmosphere over the past 800,000 years kind of pa uh, caps out at 280 parts per million. And just to put that in perspective, our current atmospheric concentrations are over 400 parts per million. And they've, they've been, when I was in high school, they were, in, they were at 350 parts per million. So in the span of a lifetime, I've seen an increase of 50 parts per million, whereas over the last 800,000 years, the concentrations have only been varying at a scale of like 100 parts per million. I know that's like a lot of numbers, but mm. hopefully that can kind of break down just the the degree of change. Yeah, yeah and mm. one way to like conceptualize that time scale, uh, I read in a um, I've been reading a bunch of climate stuff recently that I found helpful was that uh, mm. human beings have put as much carbon into the air since the time when Al Gore published his first book as they had between the time of the Industrial Revolution and the publishing of that book. So with <laughs> yeah. with full knowledge of what climate change changes you know yeah yeah and, and when you think about biogeochemical cycles it's like you you can't just take all of that carbon out of the ground and burn it and not expect it to have kind of like a an effect on the carbon cycle that is just something that the earth hasn't experienced you can't expect to have like no effect at all um because yeah it, it's going somewhere we're in a steady state system right yeah uh, and you uh, put that earlier. Am I right that you you put that earlier in terms? Uh, I think you said that. Um, uh, what is it? Nothing. Nothing comes from nothing, or or something doesn't come from yeah. nothing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Just an old exactly. thermodynamics principle. Right? The, yeah. Yeah. Law of mm -hmm. law of energy thermodynamics, yeah. and also the fact that like you know we are just on this earth in space. It's not like there's new material coming in from yeah. anywhere so whenever you take some material that was kind of immobilized and not really part of the active carbon cycle or any sort of active nutrient cycling you take that you inject that into the atmosphere all of a sudden it's part of the active carbon cycle where it wasn't before there's going to be all sorts of ripple effects from that you know Cool. So uh, you've just given like a really awesome kind of description of how some of these cycles work and the um, direct connection that they have to monitoring the way in which climate change has come to pass and understanding like humanity's kind of role in that. And uh, so I, I'm really grateful for that. And so in our next couple questions, I'm just going to 
kind of take a step back for a second and um, mm-hmm. just just ask, like, as somebody who's, like, spent a lot of time, like, thinking about the science of uh, ecosystems, um, mm-hmm. it, you know, and for – but for someone who maybe hasn't done that, uh, do you have – uh, recommendations of resources or like certain core concepts on like you've already presented a few, but that you would really recommend to like keep in mind, like for people who are maybe um, not as well versed in the science of this stuff, but who want to be able to understand what's going on. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, for sure. So I think like for me, an important concept to unpack when really wanting to understand climate change is the idea of a greenhouse gas, Mm -hmm. because that term gets thrown around a lot, but um, do people really know what it means? So so when we think of a greenhouse, (laughs) yeah, you, you know the greenhouse is hotter on the inside than the outside. And like, why is that? Well, there's solar energy coming in, and it's, it's being contained in that space by a physical barrier, which would be like the glass or the plastic, right? So when you take that, you know, the physical greenhouse, you apply that analogy to the earth itself, um, the, what would be analogous to like, you know, your glass wall or your plastic poly siding would be the atmosphere itself, And this maybe is like a hard, it's like a bit challenging to wrap your head around. So when you think, oh, it's the atmosphere, like it's just air, like there's not actually a physical barrier, right? Like why is, why is this, like it's just earth from here to space. So why is it getting hotter? And that's when greenhouse gases come into play. So there are certain gases that are, they're called radiatively active. And that means that they can both absorb and re-emit solar energy, which radiant energy is like a, a term for it, right? So when, when you have a molecule with atoms of different elements, so two main greenhouse gases that most people probably have heard of, but if you haven't, that's okay too. It's carbon dioxide, so that's carbon and two oxygen, and also methane, so car- carbon and four hydrogen. So when you have these two different elements in a similar in in a gas gas molecule, a gas camp compound, when solar energy hits them, they experience a net change in charge. So the solar energy hits them, they start vibrating, and their charge changes. It it increases usually when the, when the solar radiation hits it. So it increases. Their charge is in this excited state. But usually, but in in chemistry, when when compounds kind of absorb energy and are in an elevated or excited state, they always eventually release that energy and go back down to their original state or the ground state. So you have this gas molecule, two different elements in it. It's hit with sunlight. It starts vibrating. So it's kind of holding that solar energy within its actual molecular actual molecular bonds. And then it can it can re-emit that energy. So the connection between that and climate change is when you have a lot more of these types of gases in the atmosphere that can store solar energy, they they basically block that solar energy from radiating radiating off of Earth back into space. 
So you, so you think about the sunlight, right? The path of a little sunbeam. It's coming in from the sun. It hits Earth, goes down through the atmosphere, through all the clouds, hits the, the Earth's surface. And, you know, some of it's absorbed by the Earth, but a lot of it just, you know, it's time for it to bounce back off and go back into space. If there's clouds, you know, sometimes it can stay close to the surface. That's why on cloudy days, it's often warmer in the winter than in colder days. It's kind of like its own insulation, right? So that's that's an example where you can actually see what's kind of keeping the, the solar energy in, what's insulating it. Unfortunately, we can't see with the naked eye, carbon dioxide or methane or any of these other greenhouse gases. And I personally think that's a tragedy because if we could see them with our eyes, maybe people would think about climate change differently. But so now basically we just have this increasing amount of gases in the atmosphere that instead of letting that sunbeam, that little radiative like energy packet, just pass through them back into space, they hold on to it and they don't let that sunlight go back into space. So then it, it starts increasing the temperature over time. So it's like a giant global insulator. Yeah. It's like a That's why it's called the greenhouse yeah, effect. Yeah, exactly. Hmm. Or like a blanket kind of. Is there any analogy to be had with a with a uh uh not a microscope but a magnifying glass? Magnifying glass? <laughs> I mean, is there any of sim uh, analogous effect in terms of like the intensification of the rays or is it just a kind of an, an insulator yeah it's an insulator it doesn't it doesn't concentrate them in any way you know it's like it's still the same amount of energy that has come into the earth from the sun but it just decreases the amount of that energy that is returned to space and over time that can cause global increases in temperature as we're currently so Greenhouse, the greenhouse effect, I think, is one of those things that is obviously crucial to understand and sort of at the core of like grasping what's going on in climate change. But it's really like all the ripple effects of that heat on like the diversity of ecosystems around the planet, right? That ends up mm -hmm. um, being sort of what we would consider to be a problem, like in that, Definitely. yeah, like it harms the living things on earth and like in, we and the whole planet like depend on the balance of those ecosystems, right? Yeah. Well, I would say that using the word harm, um, like on, a, like overall, yeah, there's harm being experienced, but just from a purely like scientific basis, like, it's just changing it, right? So when you have more heat, like when you think about just kind of the base elements, right? Because that's that's why I like biogeochemistry. It kind of takes all of the, you know, many beautiful complex organisms and life forms and substances and landscapes in Earth and just kind of reduces it down to its elemental composition. And then from that, you can do math on it and kind of build back up what the effects will be. So when whenever the temperature increases, uh, water increases evaporation, right? Like there's always steam coming off of a kettle. So if the global temperature is increasing in the world, well, our world is mostly covered in water, right? So that means that there's way more water relative to 
before this happened um, that's being evaporated into the atmosphere. And when there's more water in the atmosphere, it's going to intensify the water cycle. So that's kind of the connection between um, climate change and some of the predictions you might have been hearing where it's like increasing frequency of storms, uh, severe weather events, you know. And the important thing to remember, too, is that increasing temperature also means increasing drought. So all of the effects of climate change are going to be localized within whatever the like kind of systems are doing in in different areas of the world, right? Um, Another thing to remember is that it's increasing extremes. So just because, you know, it's raining, but I thought it was global warming. Why is it raining more? It, it Like rain, increasing frequency of storms and magnitude of storms is also a symptom of climate change because of the uh, amount of water that's kind of being added to the global water cycle because of increasing temperature. So like, is there like a hybrid kind of, is there, is there like, could you say that there is a hybridity of different ecosystems and that ecosystems in different areas of the world will have different ways of like filtering the gas as well? Because like I know I know like very basic shit on this stuff like, uh, you know, like that, like trees are supposed to absorb like um, uh, CO2 and this kind of stuff. And I'm just wondering how like when you're talking about all of the um all of the concentrated uh, gases in the air that are part of the greenhouse uh, greenhouse effect, like are those being distributed uh, differently depending on the ecosystems that exist around the world, or how does that work yeah. exactly? Yeah, no, for sure. Well, something that I think uh, is a tragic but also a beautiful thing about climate change is that the answer is no. The atmosphere is just mixing over the entire globe, right? Like uh, whenever you have a solution of different compounds, it's going to naturally kind of disperse into a way that's equally mixed throughout, through everything. And, and there are exceptions, right? Like certain areas of the world produce more carbon dioxide. So there's more localized areas where it's higher concentration. Um, But in general, over time, everything mixes. But I mean, also another example, the Amazon rainforest, you can kind of see the pulses of carbon dioxide uh, based on seasons, temperate zone seasons. So you can see the changes, but in terms of the effects, um, I, I wonder if you're maybe asking about the Earth's ability to like buffer some of the effects of this increase in gas. And that the answer is yes. Um, we would be you know, years ahead of our current climate trajectory if we didn't have so many oceans on our planet. Because oceans absorb carbon dioxide, they absorb it into the water, and their carbon dioxide either exists, is caught carbon dioxide, but in an aqueous state, or it reacts and forms bicarbonate, which then dissolves into bicarbonate And then that can form into carbonic acid with Mm -hmm. a hydrogen from water. And so that that kind of results in ocean acidification. Maybe you've heard of that as a common, uh, a bad side effect of climate change. That's because the ocean is finally reaching its 
buffering capacity. So that means mm-hmm. it's, it's reaching the point at which any more carbon dioxide is going to, it's just at its limit. It can't absorb any more. So unfortunately, that's not great. Yeah. Another thing is, um, <laughs> yeah, another another thing is like people have kind of, there, there's, people have speculated that there is going to be a bit of like a fertilization effect. So because of more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, it might help plants grow more because can't plants uh, take in carbon dioxide and take then output oxygen for their own metabolic processes. So that might happen in the tundra and in areas where um, the kind of net production has been low. We might see that production is increasing there because um, the climate's becoming more favorable. Uh, yeah, yeah uh, I think something that your comments there bring out is <laughs> that there are limits <laughs> to I let's just call it like human activity for a second and it it's as if we treat the earth as if there aren't limits right mm-hmm. as if everything as if all our economic activity etc just infinitely expandable and there's kind of like an infinite amount of resources or uh, let's for, for instance fossil fuels, right? We can just infinitely extract them from the earth and no problem. But obviously it, it turns out that there are just like absolute limits um, of various sorts. I mean, another one that is talked about a lot is um, these points of no return uh, with respect to glacial, yes, like glacial melting, yeah. right? Um, yeah. That's yeah, I know. So a tipping yeah. point is a is a common concept in ecology. So mm. so the laws that we've created for ourselves as human species are at odds with the laws of ecology and I guess natural law of the earth. So another important point that you learn, I learned it in like second year ecology, is carrying capacity. So mm. if you want to study population ecology, which is just kind of like the the existence of populations in environment over time um the the main like the main deciding factor in that is the carrying capacity of the environment and once that carrying capacity is reached there's always uh the death rate the mortality rate always increases in the population until it restabilizes at the earth's carrying capacity so i mean the covid flu right now to me is a clear sign that we have we are approaching very close to the earth's carrying capacity and the earth is trying to let us know hey like i'm maxed out um and, and we like to think that we're invincible from death but we're a population living on this planet just like any other animal species right and so carrying capacity although we'd like to pretend that 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 kind of law doesn't apply to us because we invent things like the economy it still does because it's not like we're um you know buying a bunch of uh, cheap consumer goods from a colony on mars hmm. right like it's it's all still just coming from our planet yeah um so, is so that, a tipping point is kind of like oh sorry oh no sorry i was just saying uh it, are you saying carrying capacity or carrying, carrying? yeah yeah, okay, yeah. Okay. the <laughs> kind of like the yeah. short form is k it's always denoted by a little k mm. k okay. is carrying capacity nice. um mm. yeah so tipping tipping point is is a term that's used to think about so when there's an ecosystem 
Um, what is an ecosystem? An ecosystem is a bunch, is the biotic and abiotic components of an environment existing and interacting with each other. So the biology, things that are alive, things that aren't alive. So when you think about an ecosystem, it's, it's kind of its function is to cycle matter, nutrients, and energy right? It's, it's taking in energy from the sun, it's cycling it through the organisms, and it's in a state of homeostasis, right? Like, it's steady state. The energy in allows the energy that's here to exist, and it supports us, but also we have decomposers and fungi that keeps everything cycling, right? So a, a tipping point is uh, a term that's used to describe when an ecosystem is uh, cycling matter, energy, nutrients, in kind of like a homeostatic way over time it's just existing that stuff is happening um then all of a sudden one part of the ecosystem becomes uh out of balance so to speak so for example the carbon cycle instead of a bunch of carbon that's inaccessible in the earth's surface that we can't reach all that carbon has kind of been transformed and now it's in the atmosphere that will change every single other part of the ecosystem because everything is connected either directly or indirectly. And one of my favorite things about studying ecology is just the, how, when you look at a food web and you think, okay, well, what if like this plant decreases? And, and then you look at all of the other connections of things that are impacted, either depend on that plant for their existence. Um, if you follow those reactions outward, there's ripple effects and like everything is basically affected either directly or indirectly. Because if something relies on it directly, then the thing that relies on that thing is going to be affected, right? So all of a sudden, there's no longer homeostasis, there's kind of like shifting. And the tipping point is when the change gets so great that the ecosystem can no longer continue at the same homeostasis that it was at before. So then, then this, this point happens and all of a sudden everything changes and it is drastically different from anything that had been occurring in that ecosystem in the cycling of matter, energy, nutrients before that tipping point. So... Um... And what that points to, like these two concepts of the steady state understanding of the ecosystem and the tipping point is not to say that because it's steady state means that there's no change, no internal development and complexity um, because obviously there is if something like a tipping point is possible at all. So it's not to say that it's static, oh, yeah. like it's internally very dynamic. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So homeostasis kind of means like a... Uh, harmonious chaos so the the change the changes are always happening it's very chaotic but the changes are always happening within like this kind of same uh the same level it's like the stability of the dynamic itself yeah right? uh, like the changelessness mm -hmm. of the change <laughs> if you want yeah. yeah yeah like your body's in homeostasis yeah. that's how yeah. you're you know if you take your temperature and you're healthy it's always going to be around what like 27 degrees celsius perfect perfect example our body is going through you know countless changes every moment of every day yet somehow we just still stay at the same temperature so an ecosystem is yeah. no different it's yeah. just like the body the bodily systems of the earth yeah mm -hmm. yeah yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's really awesome. 
Yeah. Yeah. There's. Oh, um, and I know I've been chatting a while, but I do have a couple of resources I wanted to mention. Yeah, please, please do. You, you talked about resources. Okay, so um, something that I found, a site that I found that I find really interesting, it's called Carbon Brief. So you look it up, and it's this interactive map, and it is basically a compilation of scientific papers and articles that are all climate change attribution science. So what that means is they have taken extreme weather events and compared the probability of the extreme weather event happening in our current industrial revolution, fossil fuel fuel burning world, to if the climate had just kind of maintained itself how it was at the last ice age at like 230 80 parts per million. So, so they take the, the kind of pre-industrial revolution climate scenario and then they compare it to the current pre, uh, climate scenario and they compare the probability of that extreme weather event happening. So what, why I think that's really cool is um, it just looks, helps me look at the likelihood because another thing that's hard about climate science to wrap people for people to wrap their head around is that like you could never take an extreme weather event and be like this weather event happened because of climate change the reason you can't do that is because the earth is an infinitely complex system and especially weather like weather um is based on fluid dynamics which is based on brownian motion which is basically like chaos theory so you, it's actually like impossible to really pinpoint like why it happened or but you can compare the likelihood of it happening between like pre-industrial era and post-industrial area climate timelines um and see if it's been influenced by us altering the climate or not maybe i don't i'm not sure if you if you would agree with this but maybe uh it's like people have to become more comfortable um uh in dealing with probabilities uh, rather than just like yeah. sheer necessities um, mm-hmm. or like certainties, right? Um, mm-hmm. Because as you say, there's there's always there's this kind of infinite flexibility um, totally. and kind of like uncertainty in that in that respect. Um, totally, and I, that's why I personally love studying ecology. Like uh, you know, Newtonian physics is very calculable. Um, it's nice formulas, but even with Newtonian physics, when you get down to the subatomic level, it's just like, it makes no sense and it's inherently complex. So studying ecology to me is just really, um, it instills a really large sense of humility and respect because there's just so much interacting all the time. Like if I try, if we try to put it into our computer models, it's like, you know, a hundred factors interacting on a hundred other factors and all of the combinations of everything. Like that's, that's a lot of RAM to go through. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it would require like infinite RAM. <laughs> right. Yeah. And that's yeah. the challenge that people are up against with climate modeling. So I really do think it's amazing that we've come so far with it. And that leads me to just the other research that I wanted to mention so if you go to Carbon Brief and you're kind of interested in learning more or diving in or you want to know a little bit more about like the history of how climate science has developed, um, I would recommend looking at the International Panel of Climate Change Reports. 
Um, it's like an intergovernmental body of scientists that all contribute to them. The authors list is ridiculous, but they have been producing reports since like the early 1990s. Um, one of the one of the very first ones was on radiative forcing. So it's cool to kind of go back and look at how, I mean, it's a bit dark, but like all the things they were saying back in the 90s, now we look at the news and there's more fires, there's more floods, there's more droughts, there's more monsoons, there's more flooding, you know, like it's it's not like we have dumb people working on this issue. Awesome. So uh, you've given us a ton of really great resources to check out here, like digging back through those reports and uh, that kind of website for doing the modeling. I think those are both really helpful. And I also want to mention that, like, I'm excited to, like, go back and listen to this again, because this has already been, like, so helpful for just, like, crystallizing my own, like, understanding of how some of these systems work. Like, I think you've done a really good job kind of... uh, uh, describing what we're talking about when we use this language of climate change, greenhouse gas, and so on and so forth. So I found I just I'm really grateful for that. Um, but to kind of shift gears a little bit, uh, one question that um, I think is really interesting to discuss is the way in which science and especially these kind of like climate science, let's say, operates as the main form of knowledge, like at the forefront, most directly interfacing with the uh, material reality of climate disaster. And so the question would be, do you think that the core scientific method is well-equipped for this role? So I ask this with the idea in mind that Um, science is about removing the subject from the observation, whereas climate change as a socially generated phenomenon, insofar as it was like human society that has produced all of this carbon. Um, So uh, climate change as a socially generated phenomenon, it kind of requires this like subjective and even moral uh, response. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you're just, so it's kind of thinking about the tool of science uh, relative to other ways of knowing. And so I think that it is, um, I think it's like a colonial informed mentality to think of science as being like the very first um kind of I'm, I'm thinking of science as being like the first way or like the very initial way of interacting with climate change because uh the we've seen throughout the world that the people the 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 ways of relating to climate change at the very front line are primarily people like who are indigenous and like living in like the equatorial areas, either at the poles or at equatorial areas, because those are areas where um, the effects of climate change are already being felt. So, and also those are the, those are the people, unfortunately, within like our global species that are, you know, not going to be supported or not being supported as much in dealing with with this phenomenon. So I think that like to think of science as being like at the forefront, this like indigenous ways of knowing are at the forefront, uh, especially in the Arctic 
and especially in uh, small island communities uh, where people, generally places where people are still dependent on subsistence living, either dependent or that living off the land is uh, really integral, is still an integral part of their culture and their collective identity. So when, when the land is you know, part of your collective identity as a society and the land all of a sudden starts changing, that is the most immediate kind of impact that that this that these things can have. And, you know, looking at data of carbon dioxide increasing or, you know, the likelihood of extreme weather events increasing, like that that is a step removed in, in my mind. Um, and I'm just trying to think of the rest of, is it equipped for this role? Yeah. So, so, so it, I, I don't think it's really at the forefront. And I think that we need to acknowledge that and respect that more and also prioritize voices of people who are currently in the midst of experiencing and dealing with and trying to adapt to the changes to the land that are happening because of climate change. Um, and in general, I think climate change is like, or science, science in general is a slow moving phenomenon. Uh, you always, you never have enough data. The data is like, it's never enough, right? And, and so any kind of predictions that we're making are going to be inherently limited by the information we have available. And the information we have available is always going to be limited by like logistics, like social economic logistics of who has funding, who has access to do the research, um, things like that. Yeah, that, that yeah. was an excellent answer. And um, previously uh, on the podcast, we talked about um, Wet'suwet'en. And I think you mm-hmm. could see that as a pretty clear example of precisely what you're talking about, where um, – you know, folks who were living there prior to a lot of these pipeline constructions, like, <clears throat> are are noticing the way in which um, species are changing. You know, they're saying we're seeing less moose, we're seeing less of X, Y, and Z kind of local species who we're accustomed to seeing. You know, and we have this kind of sense and this tradition that we know that how these. Um, uh, how these populations of animals normally operate, and we're seeing that change as a as a result of the kind of industrial um, construction that's going on in our immediate environment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I do think that like like within lab science, there I, I think that the idea that the subject is removed from the observation is maybe something that's taken more for granted. But I know that for statistical analysis, especially in like modeling where you have more than two variables, kind of everything interacting at once, um, it generally is, at least in my experience with research and the people that I've worked with, um, it is really thought about what your question is going into it. um, And also the reliability and the kind of data that you have going into it, because, you know, your model results are going to be they're They're intrinsically tied to what you put in. So if you put garbage in, you're going to get garbage out. Um, so I, I think at least within multivariate statistical modeling, um, it's just so complicated that um, most people just most scientists acknowledge that the way that you um, you can't ever really remove yourself from the way that you run the model. 
Um, but that there, you could like there, a model is never accurate. It's only less wrong, you know? Um, because you're always just trying to kind of like inch slightly closer to the reality, which is kind of always slightly out of reach, you know? Yeah. Like trying to comprehend as many, uh, factors as possible in what is sort of fundamentally like beyond that sort of comprehension, maybe. This is totally anecdotal. Uh, it kind of has to be, but yeah, it's my experience that this whole divorce of the observer from the observed, uh, you know, which obviously was overcome uh, theoretically in, uh, you know, in various experiments that people know about. Uh, it seems to me like that's, as you said, Anna, that that's normally taken a uh, taken into account like in scientific practice where that um understanding is not so um clear to me seems to be like at the popular level so like whereas everybody mm. you know claims that um you know, ah, yeah, like, we now understand that, like, quantum physics uh, supersedes, like, whatever, Newtonian physics. At the popular level, people's, like, worldviews are still largely determined, uh, you know, it's still kind of like Newtonian physics for most people, <laughs> right? Even though we sort of claim yeah. to have gotten past it. I mean, anyway, so you, maybe you see the distinction I'm trying to draw there, like, in this observer-observed mm. thing, in scientific practice, it seems to be acknowledged normally these days anyway, in my experience, but it's more like at the popular mm -hmm. level where people don't seem to kind of insist on that or, or understand it. At any rate, that yeah, that's totally anecdotal. But Yeah, it, yeah. It, I guess it's the idea of like allowing your own internal bias to influence the result. Yeah. And I guess, I guess it's important to say, like, I don't think that your own internal bias can ever be divorced from the result, but it's, but it's that truth that you're always trying to kind of like, you're always trying to like lessen the influence of that truth, right? So you're always, you're looking at your error bars, you're looking at your um, replicates, you're looking at the degrees of the, the degrees of confidence, you're looking at your correlation coefficients, like you're just using all of these tools in math to try to, to, to make it to make it so that it's like, the least inaccurate. So to speak. But also, um, but it is also influenced by your hypothesis, right? And the questions you're yeah. asking. And that's when, when, like, we were speaking earlier, and I said that um, the greenhouse effect would harm these ecosystems. And you immediately were like, well, no, they changed the ecosystems. It's like, you know, cut that value language out of there if we're going to do like this kind of analysis. So I thought that was interesting. <laughs> Yeah, they like it, it would just depend on how you would want to define harm. And I think loss of biological life is a great indicator. So in that sense, 100% they're harming the ecosystems. We're in the midst of the sixth greatest global uh, extinction, which is the current loss of biodiversity and the extinction rate of species like currently, like every year species going extinct. It's just because of habitat destruction and resource pollution. Yeah, it's almost like a descriptive statement that you can translate into uh, a normative like statement or 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 a value claim. 
just kind of building off uh, your your last answer, which I thought was awesome, where you kind of admitted right away that, well, science isn't at the forefront of um, understanding the effects of climate change. Rather, there are these forms of indigenous knowledge. And so in your field uh, of research, um, has there been a lot of um, inclusion of indigenous voices and uh, knowledge systems? Have Are you familiar with different tensions between these different ways of knowing? And uh, depending on how you see that, like how do you think that has affected the field or could affect the field going forward? Yeah, I think that... The Western scientific tradition and tradition of like indigenous knowledge just come from completely different groundings um, or very, very different like conceptual frameworks. And um, so because of that, I think it it would be interesting to see how they could integrate. um, And maybe I'll talk about that. But in my field, a lot of climate research in the lab that I was in for my master's, which is a tank lab of aquatic biogeochemistry at the University of Alberta. Um, a lot of people there are working on studying permafrost thaw. So the melting of permafrost due to climate change and the influence that that's having on downstream water chemistry and also even further downstream in like the Mackenzie Delta and in the Arctic Ocean. So, yeah, they would be they were conducting research within First Nations communities. And I don't know if I'm going to pronounce it unfo- right, unfortunately, but it's like Gitsan, Gwich'in, Gwich'in communities. It's like in northern north western uh northwest territories and eastern yukon in the peel plateau in that region and um yeah they would they would kind of like work with them and just kind of integrate them as like field tech roles or guide roles so kind of just like as available help but they i also um like went to some talks where the the gwich'in uh communities actually consulted with on the ground with elders and members of the communities and put together, did these activities where they put together kind of a prioritized research program uh, of different topics. So, so they just consulted with everyone. So what do you want to know more about if we're going to use science, what would benefit us the most? And so, and I, and I don't really, there's no requirement that individual research labs or scientists prioritize that. Um, I, th- I think there should be, but when you look at the Western system of science, especially now that it's integrated within a capitalist economy, um, you know, the research topics that might be best for your career or best for the field are not necessarily in line with research topics that are being like desired and prioritized by indigenous communities. And right now, like the university is part of the capitalist economy. And um, I would be really impressed to see any uh, university institution or department administration make a policy or bylaw that says, like, in our ecological research, when we're out in the field, we are going to make sure as part of our mandate, every lab has to do one indigenous 
facilitated research program per year can be any student, like something like that to at least, if not completely entirely, I mean, that's a lot to say, but, you know, we are, especially in the field of ecology, like we're on indigenous land, we're studying it, we're interacting with it. And it it makes total sense to me to honor the fact that these people were here for, you know, tens of thousands of years. And the reason that we can even be here studying it at all is because they valued respecting the earth and not taking more than the land needs, not more taking more that they need, right? The principle of sustainable harvest um, and respect. So in, in my mind, like the entire scientific discipline of ecology as a whole is, is hugely indebted to global indigenous populations. And I don't think there's hardly as much recognition of that as there should be. Um, and I would like to see more of that. Yeah. It's like, we, uh, but I also um, think that the tension, sorry, yeah, no, go, I, I just want to, my last, my last little comment, comment on that train of thought here. I think that the tension comes from different ways of approaching the accumulation of knowledge or different ways of approaching the creation of knowledge. So um, in science, it's kind of this idea that like, just, just uh, there's a lot of use of math, of counting, you kind of remove um, whatever you're studying from its kind of chaotic environment and like do something intensive and lab-based to learn something. And then you like reapply that to, to nature in a model and see if it fits. And, you know, that's, that's it really interesting. And also um, it's a very thorough and rigorous way of going about uh, creating knowledge about the natural world. But um, that way of knowledge creation is reliant on money and capitalism because, you know, you need uh, institutional professional training and schooling. You need computers, you need gear, this and that versus an indigenous culture um, they would, it was very much, it was, it's an oral tradition, right? And like, I don't want to speak for it, but it's this way of just kind of like letting that knowledge accumulate over time and passing it on through the generations. And, um, I mean, I, I don't think that science really values that kind of knowledge as much. Um, I think the written word is definitely prioritized in Western, um, kind of academia over oral and I think it would be interesting to think about what a scientific practice that was maybe oral looked like or a way to combine kind of like the best of both worlds. Um, and, and just to follow up lastly on that, like I was recently, I was recently reflecting on the value of curiosity and I think curiosity is a wonderful thing. And I think that like um, the spirit of, you know, The spirit of curiosity is a very pure way of thinking about science if it's coming from a place of love and respect um, and kind of wonder. But part of love and respect is is just like uh, being able to not do it, just like, you know, not like saying I'm I'm actually not going to do this or being like, uh, I'm curious about this thing, but maybe this thing doesn't want me to learn about it. I'm, am I, am I okay with that? You know, if I'm not okay with it, then my desire to be curious is 
very ego and ego driven and selfish in my mind, yeah. because if, if you can't respect the fact that there's always, there's a mist, there's great mystery of the earth and of the world. Um, and maybe we just can't know it or we shouldn't know it sometimes then to me, like, it's like science, uh, it, it's coming kind of from a, a, a bit of a selfish place. Uh, I've been I've been reading a really interesting book slowly lately called Braiding Sweetgrass uh, by Robin Wall Kimmerer. I don't know if you have heard of that one. And yeah. uh, anyway, she's yeah Potawatomi writer and so on. And uh, but she's trying to think about the way in which um, her work as a plant scientist and uh, like the traditions of indigenous knowledge can sort of interact. And she works this out through a whole pile of really interesting narratives. And so what you were saying there like sparked a few kind of connections for me. One would be mm-hmm. like what you're saying about not um, researching th- things uh, if it's sort of not appropriate um, to research it. Like if it's going to be this like damaging pers- egoistic pursuit of knowledge. And like that seems very uh, in line to me with that principle of the harmonious harvest where it's like you don't take too much you don't take the first thing you see and so on and you kind of receive from the earth like what is offered to you rather than taking everything and so the second thing Mm -hmm. is um that she tells an interesting story in there about having a graduate student who wanted to research um sweetgrass on the basis of uh like the uh, kind of like indigenous women who are harvesting sweetgrass who are noticing changes in the population. Uh, and they wanted to mm-hmm. know like if their harvesting methods were the most effective. And so she wanted to do this graduate research and there was a ton of resistance from her department originally because they basically said, mm-hmm. well, of course we know that harvesting is going to damage a plant population, you know, like, so your hypothesis mm-hmm. is inherently kind of problematic. But that she forged ahead anyway and did this research with control groups of unharvested sweetgrass and and then the two these two different methods of harvesting sweetgrass that were practiced by different communities to see um, what the results would be and what it all came back and she kind of finished plugged in all the data in, in the end the way it turned out was that actually the sweetgrass that had not been harvested did the worst. Like those plants, those clusters died off and so on. And so whichever method of harvesting you used, both were fine as long as you were harvesting and having this relationship with the plant. It did better as a result of that harvesting. Mm -hmm. So it completely uh, contradicted what her kind of advisory panel had originally thought uh, would happen and that they dismissed the the project out of hand, you know? And when when the results came back, they were sort of like um, had to admit that they had been wrong, you know? And so when Mm -hmm. you were talking about um, this kind of list of research topics that were guided by um, indigenous communities, like, in who are embedded into these ecologies, uh, I thought that 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 immediately sparked that story for me because it's like yeah, like having that guidance, mm-hmm. those people who already have a relationship with the land and with the um, the ecosystems and the plants and wildlife and so on, like that can actually prov- 
become sites for um, surprising kinds of knowledge and for a better understanding how important like relationship between um, human beings and the land is to the way that ecosystems really operate, you know? And I, I appreciate you brought that up, Keegan, because I also like harvest medicinal plants as like a little hobby. And um, yeah, I've just been like on the farm here. I've just been kind of going around and like finding little spots and making a note of them. But I haven't really been harvesting anything. Yeah. Because I don't know. I, to me, it's it, it can kind of be like a bit of a intuitive thing and like think about like if you're craving something that's like not a good space to be in like you're craving a bag of chips you're not going to stop <laughs> thinking about that until you either cave or you let go of it and then maybe later at another time when you're not really even thinking about it you're like oh some chips would be nice right now it's like it's a to it's a totally different experience you know um and, and i I think I've been thinking about that too, of like letting go. Yeah. I, I like this. Uh, if I can just, before Keegan does the next question, uh, it reminds me of a fragment from Sappho. And yes, I'm about to drop a fragment from Sappho on y'all. Uh, it's three lines. And um, okay, I'm not, I'll, I'll, I'll spare you the Greek. The translation is, because it has to do with like harvesting. Uh, and it's three lines. It goes something like, as the sweet apple ripens upon a high branch, high up on the highest branch, forgotten by the harvesters, or not forgotten, but out of reach. Mm -hmm. I like that. Seems, seems uh, apposite and somehow. Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so, and it's like, well, then that apple's just an offering. It, yes. And like, what's so wrong with that, yes. right? Yes. Yeah, it's an offering that can never. <laughs> her words are literally Dude. something. No, fair enough, fair enough. <laughs> right? But, yeah, her her words are some literally translated something like unreachable, and that notion of like unreachability, I think, is maybe a good yeah. one for us yeah. to, yeah. you know, <laughs> meditate on. No, definitely as a society. Yeah. But um, good, maybe Keegan, but, do you want to? Uh, oh yes, yeah, sorry. Uh, oh, or Alex, if you have a. If you have, oh no no I, I was I was just gonna say you know, no that that uh, that that fits in really nicely bit, with uh, with what mm -hmm. uh, with what uh, Anna was just saying about um, uh, having you know a craving and being in a particular uh, uh, state of being uh, in relation to environment and stuff like this and I guess I'm I'm kind of interested in what uh, like how how your uh, work and like your research. Uh, over the last couple of years has actually like changed how you relate to uh, like land and uh, uh, like plant life and ecosystems and this stuff. Like how, how, like have you found that it has changed the way that you like live and think and write and stuff like this or like. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess in the sense that like, if you think about, our life as comprised of different physical experiences, kind of like like a more phenomenology approach of just like we are what we do and what what kind of comes through our senses. Um, then definitely, like it's totally intrinsic to my being, and I think also um, because what I've chosen to study has always been, it's like I'm I'm taking data 
of the environment, but I'm rarely, um, rarely like interacting with animals or killing anything or like, or killing anything like large that I can see aside from like a microorganism. Um, and I'm, I'm also rarely like taking samples. I think the most intense thing that I ever did for that was when I was back in Halifax in my undergrad, I, um, studied, I did a little research project for a farm studying pollinators. So I would like trap the little bee or whatever in a little glass jar and then put it in a cooler. And then when it's frozen, it kind of goes dormant. So then I would just kind of put it out on a piece of paper and snap a photo before it uh, woke up and then put it outside. But even that felt weird. So all I'm saying is like, I've always been drawn to more ecosystem ecology or environmental science stuff where you're like studying the water chemistry of a stream or the soil composition and the mineral organic content of, of the soil here or, or something like that. Right. Um, so it's, it's always kind of, it's been a bit more of a passive approach and uh, I think that just comes from my own inner, like not wanting to interfere too much. And I think whenever I am out in the field taking data, um, I, I just try to operate in just like the most respectful way I can, like observing, just be, just trying to process all of the information around me as as fully and completely as possible. Um, and also to exist in a state of gratitude and because I think that when I do that, I um, I don't know. It's I'm I'm interacting in a good way with the land, and I'm I'm just make that there's like an energetic trail behind me that that lingers there in that space, and um, otherwise it's just kind of like gotta get in, get what we need, get out, process it on the computer, go back, get in, get what we need, go back, oh, do some stats, yeah, like, you know, yeah. like that. And, and that's like a fun mentality. Like environment, just environmental science in Canada is definitely is a bit of like, it's been pretty male dominated. So there yeah. is that kind of like, go get him, like, like macho energy associated yeah. with it a lot. Yeah. I'm just like, yeah, let's get in the field, like get it done. Like he's going to drive the truck and like tromp around. And like, yeah. that is, yeah. And just like, it's fun, okay. right? Like you're in the woods, yeah. just like hacking through, just like, am I lost? I don't know. The GPS says I'm here. I guess I'm going to go for it. Here we go. It's fun. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I definitely try to, I, I'm really grateful for all the periods of my life that I've been in the field taking data because I just, um, uh, in that space, in memory, the memory is always very, like, comes up with a lot of gratitude and respect and, and joy and wonder, just, just that I was able to experience um, the natural world in those places, in those times as they are. Well, that's yeah. a perfect segue into our final question here. Do you have time for a final question, Anna? Yeah. Okay. Um, so uh, by way of introduction to this question, I, I just want to say, I think you're a really gr great person um, to talk to about all these issues, not least because uh you are kind of like peculiarly aware of the, I don't know how to say it, like the the paradox of like contemporary Western nat natural science, right? Which is like as you've already pointed to, like on the one hand, like through Newton and 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 friends, <laughs> um, you, you could say that at least certain aspects of uh, of Western science have, you know, led us to, 
you know, that were used in the Industrial Revolution and so forth and have kind of led us to this position. And on the other hand, natural science is now, you know, uh, what is uh, one of the... One, uh, one of the ways that we know uh, that, for example, climate change is even is even happening, right? So there's this kind of like weird paradox in in Western science itself in this regard that's like partially responsible for uh, the predicament, but it's also like the one of the ways in which we even know that the predicament is you know <laughs> like happening. So this and you you know you yourself uh, seem to me to be kind of peculiar, peculiarly aware of this sort of paradox. So I'm really happy that you were able to, to speak to us today. Um, so our final question for you is, you mentioned the natural world at, uh, in your last comment. And um, so just to conclude here, I just want to ask, what... What do you, what would you say if you were asked, you know, what is nature, right? Like as a natural scientist, um, what, how, how would you go about answering that question? Is that a question you think we can answer? Is there any kind of consensus about this in like the natural sciences? Or do you think that's a question that's, you know, just a, uh, basically a philosophical question and it's anybody's <laughs> anybody's game and i'm just like i already told you what biogeochemistry yes. is like i don't know what else you want me to say yeah, like exactly. there's some elements there's a periodic table you know like, yeah <laughs> well i th i liked what you said before about how the to paraphrase how the reality of the natural world is something that in a way like necessarily exceeds our grasp or uh, that our models uh, are about um, providing the <laughs> least inaccurate like model uh, of what's occurring, yeah, as opposed to like oh we've this like we've achieved uh, a definition of nature in this nice little formula that you can put in your pocket or something, right? Um, so anyway, I you know I like that answer. Yeah, I, I like this question um, because it kind of points towards like a more spiritual response. And I am a spiritual person, but I also strive to like be as scientifically rigorous and as academically sound as possible, yeah. right? But um, I, I definitely don't think that they're mutually exclusive. And something that bothers me actually within kind of like new age communities is people just being anti-science. Like, oh, they... they this this person is a fact that some scientists said, therefore it's conspiracy theory and I'm just not about it. Like that, it, it annoys me. And I think there's a certain <laughs> amount of that going on with climate change. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. I, I like it because like when we think about science, it's like, it, it's our, it's our, our quest as like conscious beings to try to create knowledge about the world that we're finding ourselves in that, that we are experiencing right and um to me i think that there's always going to be something unknowable um about the world because and even you can see this in neuroscience right it's like you're trying to use your brain 
to learn about the brain, but, but we are limited by like in neuroscience, it's the most apparent. It's like our understanding of what's happening is limited by, you know, the finite systems in front of us right now. That here. we are. Yeah. And <laughs> yeah. yeah. And that we are like, we are not like, we are conscious entities, but we are still, you know, limited by our own, um, experience because we're we're conscious entities that are encased within like physical matter right so the physical matter to a certain extent is just what we're always going to be limited by or at least maybe not limited by but it's what we are like it's what we've been given it's like the framework of the experience to a certain extent right and so like the experience itself um, to know that in all its entirety, you would have to be like an omnipresent, like all seeing being, which we're not, but you know, all of the conceptions of what some sort of God-like great spirit creator entity within most of the religious traditions of the world, they, they kind of consider it like that. Right. And so, um, I, I think that nature is like, and, and including us, I think that we are kind of like a, like a, a manifestation of some sort of like consciousness that is that we are a part of, but that is like beyond ourselves. Um, but the, that consciousness is kind of, is, as I said, manifested within everything around us at the same time. So um, I think, I think like there's been theories that we're actually living in a hologram. And I think that's really interesting, especially when you consider like, uh, what we don't know about our universe, like what is gravity and what is dark matter and why is our universe expanding at an accelerating rate and what are, what's inside a black hole? Like all of these unanswered questions exist. And I, I think that like it would break our puny little brains if we actually knew what was going on. And that's okay <laughs> to not know because mm-hmm. it means that we acknowledge that there's something greater than ourselves. And, yeah. and you know, Maybe that's the infinite fractal complexity of the natural world. Um, you know, maybe it's, uh, yeah, that to me, that's what it is. But And that's what it's represented by. But it's different for everyone, right? Would you say that it gen- like that kind of unknowability generates a sort of humility in the face of it? Yeah, I, I, think, I think definitely uh, for me it does. And... It, it just commands a certain kind of respect because within every um, three-dimensional object that we are experiencing on the earth, like everything is coming from the earth, but everything has that like kind of seed of consciousness within it, just at different levels, you know, um, di- or different frameworks of experience, right? Like, I don't, I don't want to say that there's like a, some sort of medieval conception of like hierarchy with humans at the top, but it's just, there, there's like that kind of, you know, um, all, all encompassing collective consciousness with, that is part of the consciousness of a sulfur oxidizing bacteria, as well as consciousness of a spruce tree, as well as me. But it's, it's like, you know. It's just a different different levels. Yeah, of yeah. It's like it's such a tough question to answer, really, because it's yeah. it's kind of like this question. You know, it, it's asking you what is life or something. 
you know? It's like, well, what do I have to compare it to? Like, okay, there's death. Like, people die. But does that mean <laughs> that they leave life? I mean, we could talk about the way in which, like, our bodies and, like, everything that we sort of understand ourselves to be are, like, reabsorbed mm-hmm. into into the world in these kind of steady-state systems yeah. like we've been talking yeah. about, you know? So it's like... Nature, yeah. it, like holding it up against something else is like so difficult. Mm. And so when we yeah. start to talk about that stuff, it, it's mm. like, well, we are talking about that horizon of what we can possibly know. Mm. And we'll be like, oh, we're talking right. about the framework mm-hmm. of existence when we're talking about those kinds of you, ideas. You know, <laughs> you know what this makes mm-hmm. me think of? <laughs> uh uh, a scientist who didn't uh, practice uh, humility very well, uh, Dr. Frankenstein. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I guess that's that's where we are. Is that your suggestion there? Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I, I I think that DNA has to do with it. I think that like everything on the Earth is has double helix DNA. We're all part of the double helix tribe. And I think that's a really beautiful thing because just the two, the two parts of the DNA, the two little strands that are entwining around each other, it's kind of like the, uh, the two elements of like uh, matter and energy or, or spirit, so to speak, entwining around each other. And that, that is what we're experiencing. That's what everything on earth is experiencing. And I really hope that, um, if anything, climate change helps uh, unify our entire species um, together to just treat each other in a more kind and loving way and to reprioritize um, the purpose and trajectory of our collective endeavor and our societies. Um, I think that like treating the earth with respect and honoring the fact that we're all part of the double, we all have double helixes. So like we're all family. You know, like on a galactic scale, we're all family. That tree is my family. That, that you know, beaver is my family. Um, and, and like, this is like a cliche thing, but I, I think that uh, there's so many layers to that truth. And there's so many levels that it expresses itself that it's sometimes, um, you know, it, a simple truth doesn't have to be like, um, what's the word? I don't know. It's multifaceted, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah, that, uh, I think that's a great spot to end. So, Anna, just to reiterate, like, super grateful to, uh, to you for giving your time to us and uh, for having this conversation. It was actually really eye-opening and uh, really fascinating, so... Uh, I'm excited to Great, yeah. yeah, I'm excited to no, listen to it again and get it back out there. And sorry, Alex. <laughs> no, yeah. Same. Oh no, no, no. I just I, I also wanted to like thank you a lot for that because uh, um, you you're extremely articulate and like uh, you you clearly um, you've clearly thought like extensively philosophically spiritually about the work that you do and it's uh, it's really cool to see how. Um, it, it's good to know that there are folks like uh, you who are, uh, you know, in the field of science <laughs> right now and who are doing this research. So. Uh, thank you. Well, thank you for giving me the platform to speak. Um, yeah, just just being called to, being given a platform and offered a platform to speak is a call to 
just, you know, dive deeper into reflection on these themes, which are so important to me. So thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to, to do that with you all.